Hey everyone and welcome to the 11th episode of the Liam McCollum Show. Today we're going to have Scott Horton on again. Actually 10 episodes ago he was on as my first guest, but today we're going to talk about little what's, what's happened since the last time I interviewed him, especially since the coronavirus is starting to impact a lot of the countries that we're at war with right now. So not a lot of people are talking about it, it's not in the media, but we're still at war with Yemen basically aiding the genocide, Saudi Arabia's genocide in Yemen, the blockade. And we are still trying to go to war with Iran. So we're going to talk about that, um, what's going on in Iraq, and now what seems like is going to happen in Venezuela. So yeah, just not to allow the coronavirus to distract from what's going on in foreign policy, um, decided I'd bring him on. But here's Scott. Hey, Scott. How's it going? I'm doing good. How are you, man? Good. So last time I talked to you, it was, it was kind of right after the Salmani assassination. And a lot's been going on with the coronavirus. And I really, I, I want to bring you on so that we can talk a little bit about what's going on with foreign policy so that uh, people know and aren't distracted by the coronavirus or aren't only focusing on that. Um, sure. But really quick, uh, I saw some news about troops possibly coming home um, due to the coronavirus. Is Do you think that there's any possibility of that? I don't know. I sure would like to know. Um, that's my hope. Yeah, and, and I've seen you've been talking a little bit about domestic policy as well, but I really just want to focus on some stuff that's going on foreign policy first, and then maybe we can get to that. Sure. First question, there, there's there been a lot about China and whether or not um, China's responsible for this and stuff like that. Do you think, as a libertarian, do you think that there should be anything done to China if we find out that they lied about this or if, if they're irresponsible because of this? Well, I don't think there's much question that they were irresponsible in how they handled it at the beginning there. There was a clip I saw going around from uh, 60 Minutes Australia where they're criticizing President Xi for bringing everyone in for the Chinese Lunar New Year and then sending them all back out again. Five million something people um, left the hotbed of the outbreak um, and were allowed to just leave and spread it throughout the world there. On the other hand, I don't know that there was really going to be any stopping it anyway. Right. Um, unlike SARS and some of these others that have broken out in recent years, um, this one can be spread by those who are asymptomatic, uh, people who aren't sick yet or people who never do get sick, but they are still contagious. Now with SARS, thousands of people died and I guess a hundred something thousand were affected, I forget the exact number, but it was clear from the beginning that they will be able to contain this mm -hmm. because just with fever checkpoints, wherever they know that there's an outbreak, they'll be able to clamp down and hold on to it, just like with Ebola. When it breaks out, it's terrible, but they will be able to get a handle on it. In this case, you got people who can slip right through a fever checkpoint and go on to continue to get people sick. So in that sense, it seems like, you know, clamp down over the Chinese New Year or not, it would have ended up spreading. Now, maybe it would have been that much slower. Maybe we'd be hitting our peak in the middle of the summer when hopefully ultraviolet light from the hot Texas sun. I don't know where you guys live, but, um, and, and the humidity and all that is worse for viruses. We don't know whether it's going to really help this time or not, but, um, and then as far as 
you know, holding China responsible somehow. I don't know what we could do about that. Uh, we can't go to war with them. They've got H-bombs. And so there's that. And, um, you know, if people want to hold them responsible with their dollars and prefer to buy things that are made in Taiwan and South Korea in revenge from now on or whatever, then that'll be up to them. Okay. Um, but I, I never recommend, you know, government sanctions or really government foreign policies of any kind other than to stop doing whatever it is they're doing. Yeah, and now to talk a little bit about the sanctions and where we can be held responsible or people have claimed that we're responsible for some of this stuff. Can you talk a little bit about the certain countries that we have sanctions on right now and how they've been affected from all of this? Yeah, well, I mean, first and foremost is Iran. And, you know, when Obama had these sanctions on Iran back in his years, it was really bad. I mean, the excess death rate went up by you know, substantial degrees. I don't know if anybody ever measured it for certain, but um, you know, people were dying. People were being deprived of medicines that treat otherwise easily treatable diseases. And then and that was really unnecessary. Obama claimed it was all a means to an end to force them to the negotiating table, but that never did work. They had been offering to negotiate in good faith since 2003 um, when they sent George Bush the golden offer. So those sanctions weren't necessary for that. In fact, what happened was Iran kept building up their civilian nuclear program to the point where they forced Obama to the table that we've got to do something now to put a cap on this thing before, you know, it's politically too much heat for him. And so they were the ones who forced him to negotiate with that. The whole sanctions thing was a red herring, but meanwhile, killed innocent people. And then we had this nuclear deal and all the nuclear deal did was locked down a civilian program that was already locked down. They already were under the non-proliferation treaty. They already had a safeguards agreement with the IAEA. For all the hoopla surrounding the Iran deal, all they really did was allow greater inspections of their already non-military program. And they reversed some of the progress they had made. They poured concrete into their Iraq reactor, which was a heavy water reactor that could conceivably produce uh, weapons grade plutonium, though it would have to be reprocessed in a facility they do not have mm -hmm. uh, to be used that way anyway. Um, and they scaled back the amount of low enriched uranium they had on stockpile so that even theoretically it could not be converted into a bomb because they wouldn't have enough of it at any one time to make even a single bomb out of it. But again, they were only stockpiling that much to force him to the table in the first place. What Iran has decided clearly a long time ago is they don't want nukes. They want a latent nuclear deterrent, just like Japan has. We know that Japan knows how to enrich uranium and they know how to burn it and, and uh, produce plutonium waste. And we know they could make nukes if they wanted to, but let's not ever give them a reason to make them. <laughs> and that's the exact position that the Iranians were taking as well. And so Trump comes in and scotches the deal oh yeah i'm so good at making deals elect me because i'm such a great deal maker well all he had to do was say to the ayatollah look i never really liked this deal that much but we've got this deal but, but i'd really like to lift some of these sunset provisions and you know i think maybe let's work on missiles maybe we could you know if if i do this for you if i could lift some more sanctions here open up some more trade allow boeing to sell you spare parts for your aging civilian aircraft fleet where their planes just fall out of the sky all the time because of the lack of parts and that kind of thing 
if I can do some things for you, then maybe you guys could put some limits on the range of your missiles. That's what he says he wanted. That would have been the only possible approach that could have worked. And instead, what does he do? He pulls us out of the deal altogether and denounces the Ayatollah and the entire government all day long, sends the CIA to support MEK cultist terrorist wackos to kill people and disrupt society and, and support protest movements and all these things that make it absolutely impossible to even imagine that the Ayatollah is going to come back to the table, accept the same deal that they've stayed in, but accept the same deal on our terms. And then now what? Add missiles and support for Hezbollah and every and lift all the sunset provisions not while Donald Trump's president there's not a chance in hell that's going to happen and so then come all of these sanctions because that'll bring him to the table rather than pushing him further and further and further away from it when the Ayatollah backed up the president the president Rouhani said you gotta let me do this Ayatollah please let me do this and the Ayatollah's like all right and then he said to the public if this doesn't work it's his fault I'm letting him do it but I don't really believe in it and so now Rouhani looks like the biggest you know chump on the planet for making a deal with Barack Obama that the next president came in and canceled within one year that it meant nothing. And now they're right back where they were before under total economic war. And then the way this works is if you listen to Pompeo, he goes, well, we don't have sanctions on medicine. You don't need to have sanctions on medicine. You have a sanctions against their central bank, you have sanctions against every major corporation in Iran, and you have sanctions declared against any company anywhere in the world that will do business with them. And so maybe, yes, there are exceptions. You can sell the Iranians medicine, but nobody's willing to sell the medicine because if you cross one line or forget to dot one I or cross one T, now you've just made an enemy out of the United States Treasury Department. And, you know, those guys are ruthless. Boy, you think the Marine Corps is tough. These guys will completely destroy your business. So if you own a shipping company, and you have a zillion dollars invested at stake in this corporation, you're just not going to trade with Iran because that would put you in the crosshairs of the U.S. And so they just don't. And so the people are dying. You know, people's grandma, they can't get their chemotherapy. People with diabetes can't get their insulin. And, you know, what have you. They can't trade on the open world market for their necessities. And then... You know, who knows when it comes down to masks and plastic gowns and, you know, hydromethylchloride, whatever the hell the malaria treatment drug that is seeming to be effective here so far in this kind of thing. Um, and just overall, their economy is a shambles. And so people are just destitute. The inflation rate is high, which means that unless you're connected to the Kutz force, you can't save, right? Unless you're part of the corrupt system at the top of the government there. And you're just some regular capitalist in Iran trying to get by. The government just inflated away all of your capital to run your business. So the the whole economy, the healthcare system, and every every facet of the economy is already completely in the tank. And then here comes a global pandemic. And then what does America do? Add more sanctions and more sanctions and more sanctions. Go look at antiwar.com where you know Mike Pompeo and the Treasury, the state and the Treasury Department just continue to put more and more on them in their maximum pressure campaign, which if you listen to them was supposed to work already, but yeah, hasn't. 
And now they're threatening even that they're going to start attacking Shiite militias in Iraq that are backed by Iran when those are the same guys we fought the last two wars for over there. Now we're threatening to turn around and and have a massive war with Iran and their friends in Iraq at the time when we should be killing them with kindness. You know, Donald Trump should be firing Mike Pompeo, hiring Rand Paul to be the secretary of state. And he should be announcing that because of the emergency, we're going to try. He's Donald Trump. He can flip flop all he wants. You know, Israelis go to hell. Shut up. I'm doing this. And then announce to the world we're lifting every last sanction on Iran. We're normalizing relations. We want to buy oil from them. We want to sell them Boeing spare parts for their civilian fleet. And put it there, Ayatollah. We're going to have to get along because our humans demand it. We have to protect our people. That's our job. And that's how we're going to do this. We're just going to get along. The Cold War with Iran is officially canceled. And all you hawks, suck it. Get Just beat it. And what are you going to do? Run to the Democrats? Is that what Joe Biden's going to run on? Is going back to economic war with Iran if Donald Trump calls it off? And, of course, he won't do that. I'm not saying he would or that he might. But that is obviously the only way to go right now. And you know what? What did Donald Trump do? He called Kim Jong-un, and we have plenty of sanctions on Korea, too. And he said, listen, Kim, I want to help you with your coronavirus crisis, man. What can I do for you? And I don't think that went very far, but it goes to show that he understands the spirit of that. We don't have to be enemies with North Korea. Why? They're communists, and they actually have nuclear weapons because George Bush put a gun to their head and made them get them. And so, um, but Trump wants to figure out a way to get along with the DPRK. And so he takes advantage of this crisis and says, hey, let's be friends. Let's find a way to work things out. And which just goes to show we don't have to have beef with North Korea at all, do we? We never did. We never did. George Bush didn't have to break the agreed framework deal of 94. Him and Obama didn't have to do this maximum pressure campaign against Korea. We could have had peace with the DPRK all along. And And if that's true, then it's true about Iran. It's true about the poor dying genocide victims in Yemen who we're bombing and starving and killing right now. It's, you know, it's true for every country in the world that our government has beef with that, you know what, at a time like this, we have nothing to fight over with you. And if there's anything we can do to help in order to help to smooth over past differences, fine. And after all, You know, Donald Trump is not a Bush or a Clinton. None of this is his fault. You know, Hillary Clinton's husband is the one who screwed up 10 different things, right? He's the guy who kept the dual containment policy. He could have had peace with President Rafsanjani back in 1993. And instead, he didn't. Instead, he let the Israelis decide that we ought to stay in Saudi Arabia in order to contain Iraq and Iran both. And of course, staying in Saudi to contain Iraq and Iran both is what caused the September 11th attack against us and became the excuse for all of the rest of this. Fighting a war for Iran in Iraq and then wishing we didn't and back in Al-Qaeda to try to compensate for that and all of this madness in the last 20 years that never had to happen at all. If it was President Hillary right now, she has got so many conflicts of interest, she could never do the right thing. Right. If Jeb Bush, George W. Bush's brother, was in charge right now, what's he going to do? Tell us the truth about why things are the way they are, and here's how we're going to fix it? 
But instead, we got Donald Trump. He was never even a governor, much less a senator. He didn't vote for a bit of this. He's not responsible for a bit of this leading up to his presidency anyway. It ought to be easy for him to just say, listen, we all know how stupid George Bush was and what a coward Barack Obama was. And that's why everything's so screwed up. And that's why under my great leadership, I'm now going to make peace with whoever I want. And if he was, you know, threatening the Ayatollah last week and he wants to flip flop this week, fine. He's Donald Trump. This guy could flip flop like no other ever. He'll just he'll tell you one thing and then completely contradict himself after the comma without even stopping for a period and a new sentence. He will change his mind about whatever he wants. And so he could be doing that all for the good. And he just won't. But it just goes to show that he could. If he could pick up the phone and call Kim and say, hey, Kim, how can I help you? Then why can't he do that with the Ayatollah Khamenei? Yeah. So it appears that um, Pompeo is, while Trump's dealing with the coronavirus at home, it appears that Pompeo is kind of dealing with Iran. He's dealing with Venezuela now that we're, we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, is, do you think that he has less control over foreign policy than we're told? Yeah. He's the guy in the chair, man. Uh, no excuses. Same thing for Dick Cheney and Richard Pearl and Paul Wolfowitz lying us into Iraq. They lied to George Bush and promised him it was going to be great. But he was the one who made the call. He's the one who's 100% responsible. Right. And that's the very same thing with Donald Trump. And I'm sorry that I spaced and didn't mention Venezuela. Of course, that's the other best example right now where, yes, just like in North Korea and just like in Iran, they have an extremely flawed republic down there in Venezuela. But look who's talking. And so what do we do? We threaten them and sanction them. They have this terrible hyper hyperinflationary policy that's just completely um, – you know, and, and, and the American sanctions regime. But, um, you know, they print so much money down there. They, you know, third of the population has fled in the last few years. I mean, it's just an absolute catastrophe down there. And part of it is because they built up this giant socialist system on George W. Bush's oil prices. Right. But those days could not last forever. And now that they've crashed, they're just in no position. And of course, because they have socialist ownership of their oil uh, company, they've run it into the ground because they got all the perverse incentives in charge and how they run the oil company. And so, you know, they haven't maintained the equipment properly and they, they don't run it right. So they've lost their ability even to pump the oil that they would now be selling at much lower prices than before. And so they just print money in response. And then like socialists everywhere, they go, man, prices keep rising. We better print more money so we can afford all the things we got to buy at these new higher prices. And it just keeps going and going and going. And so what does America do? Do we lead them by example and say, no, you need hard money. That's your problem. Let me explain to you why property rights are the best ways to distribute goods and services and so forth. No, we don't. Instead, we come in and add so many sanctions to them we give their government the excuse that it's not our bad monetary and economic policies it's just that the usa the global superpower is picking on us it's the sanctions that are responsible for all of our economic problems which is like half true at least Mm -hmm. right we're doing everything we can to kick them out of the global financial system to prevent them from trading with other people and doing everything we can again just like with iran mac Maximum pressure to try to destabilize the country and overthrow it. And look at the joke of the fake 
failed coup from a year and three months ago when they tried to put this guy Juan Guaido in there. And this is a guy who in the meantime has called for the American military to invade his country, to put him on the throne repeatedly since that time. So no matter who you are, he is a traitor. He is the enemy of the people of Venezuela, period. And our government thinks that, yeah, we're gonna make this guy who was never elected to anything but a house seat and we're just gonna somehow make him the president of Venezuela. He never even ran for president of Venezuela. And of course, what's hilarious about this was these guys convinced Trump, Pompeo and Bolton convinced Trump that this is going to be easy. We're gonna declare this guy Guaido the president and then he's going to be the president. The military's going to switch sides and the people of Venezuela are going to breathe a giant sigh of relief and Maduro's going to go to hell or off to exile in in Mexico somewhere or something. And that just, just didn't happen. And in fact, you know, I don't know if you remember they played this one clip of this one small protest of a few hundred of the very richest people in Venezuela in the very nicest neighborhood in outside of Caracas all protesting and rioting and one of them was run over by an apc and they played that over and over and over again on every channel every channel ain't that funny that out of fox and cbs and abc and cnn there's just one pool camera for the whole nation of venezuela and all they have is one angle of one protest one clip that lasts about 20 seconds and then they play it over and over and over on a loop but meanwhile what else is going on anywhere in the country and the answer is the revolution was massed outside of the presidential palace to protect the president, Bent Maduro. They weren't overthrowing him. They were rallying around him and protecting him from the coup that wasn't even coming because it had no support whatsoever. And did the military switch sides? No. These guys had no idea what they're talking about. They listened to their own beliefs instead of checking it with the facts. And so they just humiliated themselves and failed miserably. Now they're saying, that they're gonna crack down on Venezuela over the war on drugs. Oh, cocaine, huh? Yeah, that's a big problem. Now, don't tell the Republican Party in Washington, D.C. it's a crime to do cocaine. You're gonna have a real problem with them. But anyway, the fact that um, what, something like 90% of the cocaine into this country comes from our ally, Colombia, which is run by American sock puppet right-wing corporatists, and from Honduras, where Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama's government backed the coup d'etat there. In fact, Hillary backed it over Obama's wishes. Obama denounced the coup, and Hillary said, no, we support it, don't listen to him, Secretary of State, and, and supported the coup and prevented the Organization of American States from opposing the, the right-wing coup against the elected leader then on a totally fake pretext. And that's where all the drugs are coming from, America's allied states. But, oh, yeah, no, we're sending the Navy down to Venezuela because now they're the reason that Republicans snort cocaine all day. Uh -huh, yeah, sure. I'm so upset at them. I guess we need to have a war. I guess we get Republicans on board for that. Does that mean that we get free coke now? I guess I don't know. <laughs> um, and so um, and, and then that's going to be their pretext. And then what do they think they're going to do? They're just going to park battleships off the shore and they're going to insist that there's a regime change there. They're gonna do, uh, send a CIA assassin to kill the guy, and then what? You know, their proposal last week was a joke. They said, here's what we're gonna do. It's a real compromise. We'll lift the sanctions if Maduro will let Guaido be his co-president for the next year, and then we'll appoint a new committee that leans right 
and they'll decide uh, and have an election and run it their way by the end of the year. And of course, the answer to that was get bent. There's no way in the world they're going to go along with that. And they didn't. And so now what are they going to do? They're they're not going to send the Army and the Marine Corps in there. They'd be absolutely bananas to do that. I mean, there are armed militias. I mean, the government has passed out rifles to their supporters, not just the actual state security forces, but the poorer people, their prized possession is their government issue AK and comes down to it. They will fight. They're not going to give up their capital city any faster than we would give up ours to some foreign invading force. It's never going to happen. And then the chance of a CIA type coup like they pulled off in 2002 mm-hmm. uh, temporarily for a few days there before it failed terribly um, is extremely unlikely that anyone working for the U.S. could get close enough to pull off something like that. So I'm hoping that because of just the widespread and total American incompetence on this issue, that they just are out of options and know it, that they just realize that they will not be able to do this and eventually then back down, as they did a year ago. They backed down because they were out of options. A bunch of kooks sitting around the deputies committee table saying, I know, what if we did this? And I know, what if we did that? They can come up with plans on paper all they want, but I just don't see how any of them could possibly be implemented. And by the way, if you're not aware of this, There's a documentary called The Revolution Will Be Televised about the coup in Venezuela in 2002. And now what's funny about this is the reason that the coup happened was because the NSA intercepted a message between Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi saying, hey, let's jack up the price of oil a little bit. And they said, well, we can't do Saddam until next spring. And Gaddafi's going to have to wait a little longer after that but let's go ahead and do a coup in Venezuela. And then that way we'll be able to dictate the increase in oil production down there. And so that was why they did it. But here's the joke. There were American leftist college students were down there making a documentary about Hugo Chavez. And they were in the middle of filming when the whole coup broke out. And for whatever reason, just because of a lack of um, you know, information and miscommunication and so forth, the right-wing coup plotters who seized power. It was like a, um, a CEO from Exxon, a former CEO from Exxon who declared himself president and, um, and his whole group. And they didn't, I guess they assumed that the documentary filmmakers were on their side and were with them. Otherwise, why would they be here? Someone else must have already decided that it's okay that they're here. Right. And so they just let them stay and continue to film everything. Wow. And they just filmed the whole damn coup. And then it turned out they had Hugo Chavez on a plane halfway to Africa when his most loyal paratroopers, he had been a paratrooper commander previously before becoming president. He had his most loyal paratroopers were hiding in the secret passageways in the walls of the presidential palace. And on the secret order, they poured out of the walls and held all the go- all the coup plotters at gunpoint and said, you better bring Hugo Chavez back right now, USOBs. And they went, oh, my God, and surrendered hands up and turned the country back over to Chavez. It's just the most oh, incredible wow. thing to see. And they and these these kids were just sitting there filming the whole thing. Wow. What, what an opportunity to see that, though. Um, it is. It's really and and his foresight that like he knew a coup was coming. Yeah. He had his paratroopers hide in the walls of the palace in the secret passageways for the right moment. I mean, that's some good stuff, <laughs> man. And, and screw him, by the way. I mean, I'm no Hugo Chavez fan and I'm no Maduro fan. This isn't about that. It's a 
about what it's right or wrong for our government to do to anyone else. Same thing for Kim, same thing for the Ayatollah. There's nothing redeemable about these men. It's just that it's none of our business. Our government, the American people, and through our government, we don't have the right to kill anybody. Mm-hmm. We don't have the right to overthrow anybody's regime for them or obviously against their interests. Mm-hmm. We just don't. It's wrong. Right. And now, in the last interview I had with you, I don't think we actually um, ended up talking about Yemen, but can you kind of sum up what's going on there with, with all of these sanctions? I've, it's pretty bad from what I've seen. Yeah, it is. It's a total catastrophe. It's the worst thing going on in the world right now, and the sanctions are the least of it. Um, what happened was in 2015, the beginning of 2015, a group of Shia rebels out of the north of the country called the Houthis seized control of the capital city in alliance with the former dictator, the former American-backed dictator, Saleh. And they overthrew his former vice president, Hadi, and ran him out, out of power. At that time, the uh, current crown prince of Saudi Arabia, the infamous Mohammed bin Salman, was then the 29-year-old deputy crown prince and brand new defense minister. And he had his own interest in launching a war to try to build himself up and improve his position inside the Saudi royal family. And it worked. But when he launched it, the war was called Operation Decisive Storm, which goes to show, one, that, man, it was guaranteed to last forever, and two, they were sure that it wouldn't. They thought it was going to be quick and easy, just like every other war has not been. Um, And so they launched the thing, and a big part of why Obama agreed to do it, they came to him and asked permission to do it. And the deal was that Obama was in the middle of signing this, as I explained before, actually unnecessary nuclear deal with Iran. Well, you would think if Obama's locking down Iran's nuclear program double extra than before, that that would help the Saudis. And that would make them feel better about us helping to secure their interests, right? But that was always a hoax. The Saudis knew just as well as you and me, the Iranians never were making nukes anyway. Right. This was just an excuse to wage this economic war against them and try to marginalize their power and this kind of thing. What they were really worried about wasn't Iranian nukes. They were worried about losing their position in America's order in the Middle East as our, you know, favorite power there. Could just as easily switch back to Iran if we wanted to. Right. And so in order to, in the words of the Obama administration, to placate the Saudis, They agreed to launch this war, which they said at the time, this is the words of the Obama government, officially. They knew that the war would be long, bloody, and indeterminate, Mm -hmm. indecisive, long, bloody, and indecisive, meaning they couldn't define victory. And if if victory was, well, we're going to drive the Houthis out of the power in the capital city, they knew that that was not going to happen. They knew that that could not work. And they launched it anyway. It'll be long, bloody, that is, innocent people are going to have their lives torn apart by high-velocity explosives and shrapnel. And it'll be indecisive. We have no idea what victory would even look like. And if we tried to define it, we know we couldn't achieve that. So, oh, well, and then they launched the war anyway. And what the Obama government did was they call it leading from behind 
when just like they did in Libya, where they try to make it look like it's really Britain and France who are doing this, we're just helping. But you and I and everybody knows America is the global superpower. England and France and Saudi Arabia are our client states. That's the way that works. And we're trying to make Libya one. Well, that didn't work out so well. Um, they're still at civil war to this day. But so in this case, Saudi Arabia has done every bit of this with American planes, American bombs, American contractors providing all of the care and feeding of their military force, all those F-15s. Saudi princelings don't maintain those F-15s. Americans do. Our Navy floats offshore with the Saudi Navy blockading the country from international trade for years now. And, um, and the CIA and the military have been assigned to help them to pick their targets, provide intelligence, and decide who and what to bomb. And I don't know exactly what you call this, but I have five different sources, four journalists and one former ambassador, and each of them have one source. I'm sure it's not the, that they all have the same source, but if you're a real journalist doing real journalism, you need at least two sources that you know who they are, who claim to know the thing firsthand, right? I don't know what you call it when you have hearsay, but really, really solid hearsay from a wide variety of sources and over time that say that you got American white boys sitting in the back of those F-15s holding the Saudi princelings little hands all the way to their targets mm. because they're just incapable of doing this stuff themselves. Right. And of course, then they're hooking up with the Boeing super tankers in the air for all their midair refueling so they can loiter around their targets and pick people to kill. And this whole time they have deliberately been targeting the waterworks, the sewage, the electricity, the hospitals, the farms, they bomb the grain silos. They bomb, sh they bomb horses like the other day. They killed a bunch of Arabian horses. They that. bomb the flocks of sheep in the field. They bomb the irrigation systems that bring the water to the crops. It is a deliberate, you know, medieval starvation campaign, a campaign of genocide against the civilian population of the country under the theory that somehow then they will be so mad at their government for getting into this mess that they will overthrow them. Well, that's never worked anywhere. It hasn't worked in Iran. It never worked in Iraq. And they kept Iraq under blockade from the end of Iraq War One in February 1991, all the way through George W. Bush's invasion in 2003. They kept them under blockade. The people of Iraq never rose up to overthrow Saddam over that. They couldn't. They were getting weaker and weaker compared to his power every day. How is that supposed to put them in a better position to overthrow him? Same thing here. And if anything, and look at the way George W. Bush's approval rating went up over the greatest failure of any president ever on a single day when he'd only been president for eight months before the September 11th attack and yet under attack by foreigners – they call it the rally around the flag effect. Mm -hmm. That's what they call it. And boy, they're constantly searching for it. They love that. That's their best thing. And George W. Bush's approval rating went up to 90% yeah. after not stopping that attack. And so, and I, I got sources in, in um, Yemen, a guy that I interview regularly is a former New York Times reporter, a Yemeni named uh, Nasser al-Arabi. 
they don't like having him write for the New York Times anymore because he has too much to say about what they're doing. But in his words, and he's not a Zaydi Shia at all, but in his words, we're all Houthis now. The Houthis are our government. The fact that it's not a Houthi government, it's just the Houthis are in charge of it now, but it's the government of the country. And they're the ones who are fighting against our enemies, protecting us from the people who are bombing us. You think we hate them more than ever? That we're going to turn on them? No. The population of Yemen, of course, is more loyal to the Houthis than ever before. Right. Because they're the ones who are fighting the war. So here we are five years into Operation Decisive Storm. We have at a minimum a quarter of a million people have been killed. 250,000 people have been either bombed or starved to death, deprived to death in this situation. We've had the two worst cholera outbreaks in recorded history, and that includes the Bill Clinton-era cholera outbreak in Iraq uh, that was deliberately inflicted on them. And we're on the verge of a third. It's the rainy season starts right now, so before COVID even hits Yemen, they've got another cholera epidemic to deal with because they have no clean drinking water. And by the way, how are they supposed to wash their hands to avoid spreading COVID when they have no clean water at all? Because America slash Saudi Arabia and our and the UAE and Al Qaeda, our alliance, has bombed their waterworks, has bombed their sewage facilities, their electricity, and their cholera hospitals. Not just their hospitals, but we set up a hospital specifically for cholera, and then we bomb that. Mm-hmm. And so they've already lived through two massive epidemics of cholera in the last three years, and now they're about to face their third as COVID is just getting started there. Yeah. And does it appear- And it's the worst thing in the world right now. It is absolutely the worst humanitarian crisis on the planet. It is, again, a deliberate campaign of genocide against these people. And the American people don't even know about it, don't even know the first thing about it. And if the media ever talks about it at all, it's the Saudi-led coalition. Uh Uh-huh. And so we bear no responsibility when in reality, this is the most powerful country in the history of the world, picking on the weakest collection of people in the world. The same thing is across the way in Somalia. We've been bombing Somalia since 2006, supported a regime change there. Hundreds of thousands of people have died of famine because of the war. You know, the drought hit in in the earlier part of last decade, a massive drought hit Somalia and all of Eastern Africa. But in Kenya, they survived. In Ethiopia, they survived. In Eritrea, they survived. In Somalia, they laid down and died. And that's because of the war there prevented capitalism from solving the problem, prevented the farmers couldn't uh, sow their crops, couldn't reap them. The ones who could reap their crops couldn't bring them to market. The roads were all bombed and there was no market and there were no customers because nobody had any money to buy anything. And the entire system of distribution of food was completely broken. And when FuseNet, that's an American and and British-backed NGO that tracks famines, they said in 2011 that 250,000 Somalis had died, more than half of them, 125,000 people, children under five years old. Okay, this is what America is doing in Somalia still, and this is what America is doing in Yemen across the Bab al-Mandeb Strait there, the Red Sea. And according to the UN and Save the Children, there are 85,000 children 
under five years old. Under five. You know anybody under five? You got a little brother, a little sister, a little niece or nephew? I know children. Mm -hmm. Imagine them being deprived to death, starving to death, dying of cholera. You know what's the treatment for cholera? Clean drinking water. You don't even need antibiotics. You don't even need antibiotics. You just need to be able to drink clean water for a few days and you'll be okay. But they don't. They drop down and die dead of it. Right. And this is the USA doing this. This is the history of the world being written and it can never be undone. This is who we are. This is what we do. And if you listen to Donald Trump, he'll tell you it's for the money. Oh, everybody have no, no idea how much money we're making off of selling these weapons to Saudi Arabia. And then he embellishes and pretends it's $400 billion when no, it's not. It's $100 billion over 10 years if you believe all those contracts are going to go through. And what percentage of America's GDP is that? Nothing. Zero percent. Zero. That is enough money to make a Raytheon lobbyist and corporate executive and dividend check casher happy at the expense of all of our humanity and especially theirs. Right. It's, it is satanic evil. It is just as horrible as it could possibly be. Does it, does it appear that we're slowing down or Saudi Arabia is slowing down at all because of the, the COVID outbreak or are they trying to take advantage of it? Well, they've announced that, yeah, we want to have some peace talks and we're going to invite you here and there. And then they turn around and launch another massive bombing campaign. Yeah. So, you know, don't believe what they say. Just look at what they do. And, and then, they only continue to make it worse and worse. And then I think Donald Trump is saying that he has some evidence that Iran is going to launch an attack on troops soon. Is what's up there? Okay, so that's talking about what's going on in Iraq. Yeah. Now, in Iraq War Two. George W. Bush's war. They fought the war almost the entire time for the Shiite side. Mm -hmm. And not just the Shiite people, but particular political parties, the Dawah Party and the Supreme Islamic Council. Were these, these were the Iraqis who took Iran's side in the Iran-Iraq War of the 1980s, when Jimmy Carter and then Ronald Reagan backed Saddam Hussein in his aggressive invasion of Iran right. after the Iranian Revolution. These were the Iraqis who took Iran's side and fled across the border or who had been recruited out of the POW camps and had been Iran sock puppets for 30 years. When George W. Bush invaded, they came walking right in on our heels. They were our friends and allies. And it was the Shiite supermajority that stood out of the way and said, by all means, get rid of Saddam Hussein for us. But then they were the ones who won the war. And, you know, if you look at the El Salvador option, that's a reference to supporting death squads in the 1980s. And they decided, well, we'll replicate that. We'll hire these Shiite death squads to hunt down and murder the leaders of the Sunni-based insurgency. Well, that wasn't really the Americans hiring the Bada Brigade. That was the Bada Brigade hiring the Americans. Right. That was these Shiite parties put, Donald Rumsfeld put our Army and Marine Corps at their beck and call. And they fought a five-year civil war for them. They ended up killing a million people and cleansing, as they call it, the capital city of Sunni Arabs to make it where it had been about a 50-50 split before. It ended up being approximately a 90% Shiite city. And so when they say the surge worked, they mean the surge accomplished Ayatollah Khamenei and Ayatollah Sistani's goals of creating a strong Iraqi Shia stand from Baghdad east to Iran and down to Kuwait. See so with me so far? Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so then George W. Bush, before Barack Obama came, George W. Bush finally realized his mistake while his staff did and finally got it through his thick skull that, you know what, we really screwed up and we took the side of the Shia in bed with Iran, who we hate. And so now we have to figure out a way to make it up to the Saudi king and the other Arabian kings and our Turkish and Israeli and Jordanian allies here. That's our axis of evil in the Middle East is the Sunni powers. And we have to make it up to them. And so what they did was they launched what's called the redirection. And I urge you and your audience to type that in, read it in the New Yorker by the great Seymour Hirsch, the redirection, the articles from 2007. And this is when they decided to start backing the Sunni Shia, I mean, the Sunni um, tribal chieftains in Western Iraq. And they also started backing Sunni terrorist groups around the region, a group called Fatah al-Islam in Lebanon to try to use them against Hezbollah, Muslim Brotherhood groups in Syria to try to use them against the Iranian-allied Ba'athist government there, um, which is dominated by Alawites and Shiites. And... Um, and then also a group called Jandala, which is a group of bin Ladenite head choppers and suicide bombers who they were using to go to war with Iran inside Iran. They were also backing a leftist group. You're familiar with the YPG Kurds from Syria. Well, they're the Syrian version of the Turkish PKK. And in Iran, they also have a leftist Kurdish faction there called PJAK. And the Americans were backing them as well to try to... Um, to, to disturb and destabilize Iran. This was three direction. So whenever anybody asks you, and I'm sure they ask you all the time, but why did Obama take the side of Al Qaeda in Syria? The answer is because he's George W. Bush. That's why. He was picking up the policy. It's not because he's a secret Muslim born in Kenya and he had bin Laden's goals in mind over America. It's that he's Ronald Reagan, he's Bill Clinton, He's George W. Bush. He backs Saudi terrorists. That's his job. And I, I shouldn't have left out Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter, <laughs> Ronald Reagan. I don't know about Bush Sr., how much he really did, but Bill Clinton certainly backed these terrorists in Bosnia and Kosovo and uh, all over the place in the 1990s. And But anyway, so that's why Obama did it. And then what was it that he did? He backed al-Qaeda in Syria. Now, what was al-Qaeda in Syria? Al-Qaeda in Syria was al-Qaeda in Iraq in Syria. The group al-Qaeda in Iraq, who were the leaders of the Sunni insurgency, the worst part of the Sunni insurgency that killed 4,000 out of the 4,500 Americans who died in Iraq War II, Zarqawi's group, the suicide bomber head choppers. Well, once the civil war broke out in Syria in 2011, they fled, not fled, they hightailed it straight across the border into Syria to take charge of the revolution. And that's exactly what they did. And the Obama government and in league with John McCain and Lindsey Graham and the leading Republicans in the Congress said, our job is clear. It's to back the Sunni insurgency against the secular government. And so it's not that Syria is a democracy. It's a fascist dictatorship. And yet, if you look at their leader, Bashar al-Assad, he's got a clean shaven chin and a three-piece suit for a reason, because he's a secularist. And his group is called the Alawites. They're kind of a break off of the Shiites. But then they also had an alliance with the Druze and with the Chaldean, Marianite and Assyrian Christians. Some of those Assyrian or I forget if it's the, the Assyrian and the Marianites. They go back 2000 years. There's one town 
that for a short time was taken over by al-Qaeda before it was liberated by the government there, where this is the last town in the world where they still speak Aramaic, the language of Jesus, from 2,000 years ago. And um, there are still Christians going back that far. And so all the Shiites, all the Alawites, all the Druze, and all the Christians, and at least a solid plurality, if not majority, of the Sunnis, as well as, well, we'll get to the Kurds in a second, but um, many of the Sunnis as well supported the secular state there and wanted no part of this. And yet the Americans pretended, they just rewrite every term. And they just say, no, it's the evil Assad himself. Never mind any of those factions that support him that I just mentioned. It's just him versus the people of Syria. Because one day he woke up and decided he wanted to murder every last woman and child in his own country. And so luckily the moderate rebels are here to try to stop him. And that's who we're supporting are these moderate rebels. Well, that's just not true. America's supporting Al Qaeda terrorists along with the Turks the Israelis, the Saudis, and the Qataris were supporting these al-Qaeda terrorists in order to overthrow the secular government there, which the government was then fighting like hell to survive and ended up, and this is all what? This is because George Bush, this is the redirection. George Bush gave Baghdad to Iran's best friends. Well, we can't reverse that. It's too late for that. But maybe we can get a consolation prize by severing them from their other Arab ally in the region, the Assad government in Damascus. And so that's why they did it. And and I'll urge your audience, just uh, type this in. As president, I don't bluff. And that is the headline of an interview that Obama gave to Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic. As president, I don't bluff. And that's him saying, Jeffrey Goldberg, please tell the Israelis, I promise I won't let the Iranians get nukes. That's what that's about. But if you read that, You'll see where Jeffrey Goldberg says, hey, on Syria, Mr. Obama, don't you think that if we got rid of Assad, that that would be a good way to bring Iran down a peg? And Obama says, absolutely. That's exactly what we're doing and why we're doing it is to try to weaken Iran's influence in the region straight out of the horse's mouth. That's why. And then it was John Brennan was the head of the CIA who was in charge of the whole project. I'm sorry I'm taking so long to tell this story, but here's where it goes. In 2013, in the spring of 2013, you know, bin Laden had been killed two years before. And at that point, the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq, um, in Syria, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, had uh, essentially a split with the Syrian-dominated faction of al-Qaeda in Iraq, in Syria. And it was really a fight over who's gonna control the oil in the East and a fight over long-term goals and strategy. Ayman al-Zawahiri and the leaders of al-Qaeda had said that the reason they attacked America in the first place, in fact, in the, the entire dispute over whether to fight the near enemy or the far enemy, they said, we have to fight the far enemy, America first. Only after they are bankrupt and withdraw from the region the hard way, only then will we be able to wage our local revolutions and create our caliphate. If we create it now, the Americans will just bomb it off the face of the earth. So what's the point of even trying that? Well, Baghdadi said, I want to go ahead and try that now. And Ayman al-Zawahiri said, no, you don't. You're fired. I pull rank and I say you can't. And Baghdadi said, well, you know, the, he, the chief justice has made the law. Let's see him enforce it, right? Like Andrew Jackson. And because Zawahiri is hiding in somebody's basement in Pakistan somewhere and has no real way to enforce his rule, 
And so the Islamic State of Iraq at that point broke off from al-Qaeda and said, you know, Jalani, Abu Muhammad al-Jalani and the other members of the al-Nusra Front in Syria, the Syrian-dominated faction, you guys can do your own thing fine, but we want our caliphate now. And so then they essentially consolidated control over the eastern half of Syria. And then one year later, in June of 2014, they rolled across the border and conquered Mosul, Fallujah, Ramadi, and all of western Iraq, a land area the size of Great Britain. And they took it all and and declared the Islamo-Fascist Caliphate that used to be George Bush's ridiculous war propaganda from 2003. Where, where are you going to put your caliphate? There's states in the way everywhere. There's nowhere to put it. There is no caliphate. What are you talking about? This was bin Laden's fever dream as he's hiding in his attic, even from his wife. He's going, gee, I sure wish I had a caliphate one day before the Navy SEALs put bullets through him, right? And then now, where Bush had made Western Iraq lawless, Iraqi jihadi stand, essentially wide open for the taking, and where the Shia parties who ruled Baghdad said, you guys can cook in the sun, we don't care about you. They weren't trying to really extend their rule over over Sunni stand. They had the East and the South, They didn't, and all the oil. They didn't need the West. So when the Islamic State, roll, when Obama built up the Islamic State in Syria, they were able to roll then right in and take over all of Western Iraq. So then Obama, he waited a month and let them go ahead and pressure the Baghdad government and the Iranians as much as he could. And it wasn't until the beginning of August that he went, well, he waited a month and a half, six weeks. And then he went ahead and launched Iraq War III. And what was Iraq War III in practice? It was another war in favor of those same Shiite parties that we fought Iraq War II for that we wish we hadn't fought Iraq War II for, that we backed the rise of the Islamic State to spite in the first place. And now, because the Islamic State blew up in Obama's face, I'm using the word we very loosely here. You understand I'm talking about the U.S. government. Um, Because it blew up in Obama's face so badly that they actually did create this bin Ladenite caliphate state, that then he had to launch Iraq War III again on behalf of the Shia to destroy it. And so every bit of American air power fighting Iraq War III between 2014 and 2017, or between 18 through 2017, um, that was all on behalf of the Daba Party and the Supreme Islamic Council and the Bada Brigade and all those Shiite militias that Donald Rumsfeld and George Bush had empowered 10 years before. And so uh, here we were again doing that. And so now, guess what? Of course, they're really pissed off for the same reason. They've just empowered Iran's best friends in Iraq again. And um, and so, and also, of course, uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria called on the Iranians and Hezbollah to come and help protect the government from the al-Qaeda terrorists there. And so now, you know, now they picked this fight with him because he was friends with Iran. Now he's completely dependent on Iran and Russia. Russia, which hadn't been in the Middle East in 25 years since the Soviet Union dissolved. They didn't even intervene in the Syrian war until the end of 2015, when it looked like the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda might take the capital city. 
finally then Putin said enough is enough and brought in the carpet bombers. So they want to say, oh, yeah, but look at the collateral damage from Putin's war. Fine, but 100% belongs at the feet of Barack Obama. John Brennan, they're the traitors who even empowered al-Qaeda to such a degree that Putin had to bomb them. So whose fault is that? And that doesn't absolve the Syrian government and uh, Iran and Hezbollah and Russia from any civilians that they've killed in their war. They're responsible for their own actions, but ultimately 100% of the responsibility belongs at the feet of the American Democrats and Republicans and CIA officers who ran that war and created that situation for them. But so now Iran has more power and influence in Syria than ever before, just like they have more power and influence in Iraq than ever before. And in fact, of course, a big excuse, part of the reason we're doing the war in Yemen is because don't you know, Iran has all this influence with the Houthis. Why is that true? Well, because there's Shiites. Well, but there's 80 Shiites. They're not 12ers. It's like Catholics and Protestants. They're quite different, you know? But anyway, oh, well, whatever, man, Um, close enough. And guess what? Now, only last summer, did the Ayatollah recognize the Houthis as the official government of Yemen. Four year, four and a half years into the war, it took before they recognized the Houthis. And yes, they've given them some limited support, but nothing like in all the accusations that they've drummed up in order to justify that war. So, you know, if you listen to Paul Wolfowitz in 2002, one of the reasons we're going to invade Iraq is because when we dominate the Iraqi Shia, they're going to love it so much that then we're going to have all this new power and influence over Iran. We're going to invade and Iraq and get rid of Saddam. And instead of empowering Iran by getting rid of their worst enemy, that's going to somehow give us all this new power and influence over them. Well, that didn't work. So then they go to Syria for their consolation prize. Oops, they make Iran, and I mean, they make Syria closer and more dependent on Iran and Hezbollah than ever before. And in Yemen, they start this war to supposedly limit the influence of Iran with the Houthis, and all they do is grow it. At the same time, recognize that Iran never did anything to you and me. They overthrew the government that America had foisted on them in a coup back in 53, they overthrew it in 79. But America had no right to do a coup d'etat and force a fascist dictator on them in the first place. They had every right in the world to overthrow it. And by the way, Ronald Reagan was selling them missiles just a couple of years later. Well, if Ronald Reagan can sell them missiles just a couple of years later, how come we still have to have a cold war against them 40 years later? And then the best they can do is say over and over again, well, Iran is the greatest sponsor of terrorism in the world. They never explain it. And you know why? Because it's a stupid lie. And there's not an explanation that they could make that would make any sense. The biggest supporter of terrorist groups in the world is the USA and our good allies, the Saudis. They're the ones who are the worst terrorists in the world. And when they try to give you any details about why Iran is the worst terrorist in the world, they go, well, Iran supports Hamas and Hezbollah. Well, they don't support Hamas anymore because Hamas took the revolution side in Syria. And supporting Hamas is not supporting global terrorism. Hamas is a local resistance group in the Gaza Strip. They are not an international terrorist group whatsoever. They're not the enemies of the American people whatsoever. And you know who they are enemies of? The bin Ladenites. And whenever bin Ladenites pop their heads up in the Gaza Strip, the Hamas kills them to death. They don't even put them on trial. They just attack their mosque and murder them. 
And then and then Benjamin Netanyahu says Hamas is Al Qaeda is ISIS blah 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 is Iran get it Islamic right it's just a lie that's why it makes no sense it's total garbage and Hezbollah they're not international terrorists either they're a local resistance group that was built up in response to the Israeli invasion and occupation of southern Lebanon and they are now they have their military force but they are now a full-fledged political party party and partner in the government. I mean, the ruling coalition in Lebanon right now is an alliance between the Christians and Hezbollah. That's who's the ruling party. And this is a government that our government is friends with and supports. They're not an international terrorist group. And then when you hear the accusations that they are, they always bring up the attack in Argentina in 1994. But that was local Nazis inside the police force that did that. It was not Hezbollah. They blamed that on Hezbollah for political reasons. They would rather let actual Nazis get away with murdering innocent Jews at their community center if they can blame it on Hezbollah as part of their anti-Iranian politics. They blame the Kobar Towers attack in 1996 against American airmen based in Saudi Arabia on I love this Saudi uh, Iranian backed Saudi Hezbollah, which is not a thing at all and has no power and had nothing to do with that attack. I and mean, there may be some small group of Saudi Shia who call themselves Hezbollah, but they're no truck bombing terrorist group. And they had nothing to do with that. It was Osama bin Laden and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who killed those 19 American airmen. And the Bill Clinton government and the FBI blamed it on Iran for political reasons. And by the way, think of that. What if it had been clear that right-wing religious Sunni radicals in Saudi Arabia want us the hell out of their country. Who was it that they bombed? American airmen who were stationed in Saudi to wage the blockade and no-fly bombing campaign against Iraq. This is the number one thing on the list of reasons that bin Laden used to recruit al-Qaeda terrorists to attack us. We're occupying the Holy Land, again, at the behest of the Israelis and their dual containment policy. And then they cite, and this one is the most ridiculous of all, is the fake plot against the Saudi ambassador that they said that this used car salesman from Corpus Christi, this is in like 2013, I guess, supposedly was going to blow up a restaurant in Georgetown, in, in Washington, D.C., in the rich, you know, Georgetown neighborhood. And they were going to kill this ambassador when uh, um, the guy that they hired, first of all, the ambassador that was supposedly the target wasn't even a prince. He was just some schmuck. He was nobody to kill in the first place. And then, and this is a society that's lousy with princes, thousands of them. And this guy was, you know, not even one of them at all. And then the guy who was supposedly going to do the plot was some bumbling used car salesman from Corpus Christi, Texas, who had was not a terrorist, was not a trained fighter of any kind, had no military experience, no experience with explosives. And all that happened was they intercepted a phone call about some kind of drug deal, probably, is what it was. And then they just spun it into this terrorist attack that never was any such thing. And there were six former CIA officers who within one week came out and said that that was a lie. That was Phil Giraldi, Ray McGovern, Ray Close, Flint Leverett, and Bob Bear, who Bob Bear is a terrible liar, horrible CNN, you know him from CNN, lying on about Russia Gate, and he at one time blamed Iran for the September 11th attack. He's a total scumbag. My wife likes him, but I think he's a total scumbag. And um, 
And then, uh, but even he was good on this. Even he said that this is just nonsense. And I'll, I'm sorry, I always forget who was the sixth guy on my list there. But there were six, that was five. There were six CIA officers who came out within one week and said, this story is a hoax. Don't believe it. That's all you need to know about that. And so, and then, but they just pushed this scam. Like somehow Iran is threatening us. But it was Al-Qaeda that knocked the tower. It was Al-Qaeda that tried to knock the towers down in 93. The combination between bin Laden's group and Egyptian Islamic Jihad. That's what we call al-Qaeda. They were the ones who did the World Trade Center bombing. They were the ones who killed American um, uh, officers training the Saudi National Guard in 1995. They did the Kobar Towers bombing in 1996. They bombed our embassies in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and Nairobi, Kenya in 1998. They bombed the USS Cole, and they killed hundreds and hundreds of people in those embassy attacks. They bombed the USS Cole, killing 17 sailors in the year 2000. They tried to bomb LAX in the year 2000, but an alert Border Patrol agent at the Canadian border intercepted the bomber and stopped that one. And they're the ones who did 9-11 and killed 3,000 of our guys. And they're the ones, the leaders of al-Qaeda in Iraq, they were the worst part of the Sunni insurgency that killed 4,000 out of the 4,500 of our guys that died in Iraq War II. And they're the guys who go around murdering Druze in Syria for being Druze, that go around murdering Christians in Syria for being Christians. And they're the ones that our government says we're supposed to back. They're the ones whose side we're on now and why, because they hate Iran more. Right. And why? And it's because of Israel, because the Likud party in Israel is determined to make an enemy out of Iran. And they're determined that the American people will continue to put Iran at the center of our agenda. And the squeaky wheel gets the grease and there's just nobody, you know, organizationally opposed to the Israelis in any effective way to stop their lobby. And so America's policy comes straight from Sheldon Adelson, who is this, you know, a gambling uh, casino tycoon who owns these casinos in Macau and has all this money. And he is one of the primary financiers of the Likud party in Israel. And he's one of the primary financiers of the Republican party in the United States. You might remember Donald Trump actually went to the, um, an APAC meeting, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. And he said, I don't need your money. I'm so rich, you can't tell me what to do. And he actually said that Marco Rubio, he takes all this money from Sheldon Adelson. And that means that Marco Rubio is Sheldon Adelson's perfect little puppet. Remember that? Perfect little puppet. But then, and you know, he was gonna go along with Israel anyway. Um, but that was his shtick at the time. But then somebody came to him and said, listen, you might be able to afford your own re-election campaign. But what about the House and the Senate? What about the entire Republican Party in this country? We need Sheldon Adelson's money. And that was the end of that. Right. And Sheldon Adelson has given $100 million to the Republican Party for the midterms. And I mean, in, in 2016, in 2018, and again, is poning up, you know, I don't know exactly how much the total is going to be for the election year this year. For, for the Republicans to remain in the House and the Senate. They're absolutely dependent on him. Mm. And this policy comes out of Benjamin Netanyahu's office. And that's why it's completely against the American people's interest. You know, I've been told before by former State Department types that, yeah, you know, there are people in the State Department and even the CIA who are still really pissed at Iran for the embassy hostage crisis of 1979 and 80. Yeah. Or, you know, through 80. And just that's part of it. 
they'll never get over that. But that doesn't explain the policy. Not really. Right. That's not why it's still like this. You know, it has nothing to do whatsoever with protecting your mom from any dangerous terrorists coming to get her. I can guarantee you that. Right. Oh, yeah. And so then to actually answer the question you were trying to ask me there about the current situation, we got our guys, about 6,000 of them there, are embedded with the Iraqi army there to fight against the Islamic State. A couple of guys just died about two, three weeks ago in a mission against what's left of ISIS there on the ground. But then at the end of December last year and into January, there was a conflict like this, and there was another one just a couple of weeks ago where there's a rocket attack on an American base that they say was launched by Khatib Hezbollah, one of these Shiite militias backed by Iran, but really a paramilitary force of the Iraqi army. The guys that we fought the last two wars for. And we don't even really know know that it was Khatib Hezbollah that did it. In fact, the New York Times had a piece about how actually it's much more likely it was ISIS that did the attack last December. And this was what culminated in the back and forth and the killing of Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force, and you know could have led to war with Iran right then. Mm-hmm. Well, so last week or two weeks ago, there was another one of these attacks on an American base and Pompeo started beating the war drum and it was reported, reported that Pompeo was pushing Trump to bomb these uh, targets inside Iraq and even hit Iran itself. And that Esper, the Secretary of Defense, talked him down. And, and, and Trump himself said, man, I don't know about that. I think we could look really bad if we start hitting Iran in the middle of this pandemic when they're being hit really hard by COVID in Iran right now because of the sanctions and everything else. And so Trump was like, geez, I don't know, pal. And the Secretary of Defense was saying, I'm with you, boss. And so they didn't do it. And there was also then, and you read about this at antiwar.com, they got a great write-up. Jason did a great write-up on this, where the actual commander of American forces in Iraq wrote a memo to the boss, essentially explaining, hey, I don't know if you really understand who's who over here, but if we really get into a war with the Shiite militias, that could mean the end of our guys. We would, we do not have the manpower. We have the manpower to be embedded with them fighting against what's left of, left of ISIS. We do not have the manpower to turn this war around against our allies. We're way overmatched here, so we cannot do this, please. And, and you know, that kind of really raises the question, right, of whether, you know, a guy like Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, and clearly with Donald Rumsfeld, I mean, with uh, Donald Trump, whether they really even understand who's who or what's at stake here. Do they understand that if they turn around and try to fight the Shiites now, that it's gonna be like Order 66 and they're all gonna get shot in the back and killed? Or, or they're at least they're gonna have to hightail it to Kurdistan and try to be safe up in Iraqi Kurdistan or something like that. They're in no position at all to fight the Shiites. But so this is part of the problem, right? Is they're all so caught up in their lies and their propaganda about Iran being the greatest enemy, they can't really acknowledge that these are the same guys we fought the last two wars for. Right. And that if we turn around and fight them now, it's not a matter of just chanting USA, we're number one. We could get all of our guys killed. It could be an absolute disaster there. And so it was the commander. I mean, this has never happened in the history of the Iraq wars. They had the commander on the ground write a letter to the president saying, hey, hey, don't you do this thing you're thinking about doing. You're going to get us all killed here. And that really goes to show about the lack of understanding, the misunderstandings, the, you know, you know, uh, misplaced assumptions about who's who and what we have the capability to do over there. Mm-hmm. I mean, if Mike Pompeo was in charge of our foreign policy right now, we would probably have lost an army in Iraq. 
you know, our special operations guys there, at right. least many thousands of them, and we'd be in a full-scale war with Iran right now over it, but it would be all our fault for doing it. And so here, it's just like when Bush started talking Cheney out of stuff in the later Bush Jr. years, he started shooting down Cheney when he wanted to hit Iran, when he wanted to hit Russia during the Georgia War, war in 08. Bush is going, yeah, we've heard enough from you, Vice. We're not going to do that. Well, that's where we're at now. We're like, thank God that Donald Trump has this cool, patient wisdom where he's going to restrain his secretary of state who's trying to get him into a war even against the wishes of the, of the secretary of defense. Right. It's crazy. And, you know, Obama, by the way, when Hillary wanted to hit Libya and his secretary of defense, Gates, said, don't do it, boss. He went with the secretary of state and launched the war when all he had to do is hide behind Gates and say, I guess not. But in this case, at least, you know, Trump has made the right decision there. He's, he's afraid enough that he's backed down from real war with Iran a couple of times when his policy, maximum pressure and all these things, is really, you know, more or less inexorably leading us toward a conflict like that. Every time it really comes down to it, like with the conflict, conflict in the Persian Gulf with the, the sea mines that were, that were attached and the drone strikes that Iran allegedly helped the Houthis with, uh, against Saudi oil interests last summer. When it came down to it, Trump said, you know what? I didn't want to kill 15 people in a limited strike just as revenge over a drone. It's just a drone. Who cares? And you and I are like, oh, my God, thank goodness that Donald Trump is so patient. Donald Trump is so so reasonable that he'll back down rather than do something crazy here yeah when that's not the kind of thing that you and i should be able to really rely on going into the future you know it's a really dangerous situation yeah well um now just to get more into domestic policy since you've been talking a little bit about that um you you mentioned how these countries like venezuela are printing money and stuff like that and there was a report out of the un that they're starting to consider a world currency and the the Federal Reserve is now doing quantitative easing unlimited. Can you kind of speak on um, the potential of inflation in our country and what's going on right now? Yeah, well, first of all, on the world currency, it's never going to happen. You know, they, there are a lot of people in the world who wish they could get out from under the U.S. dollar. But at this point, there's just not an alternative. I mean, the best they can come up is, with is some kind of market basket of what rubles and yen and yuan and whatever, it's just never going to happen. You know, not for a very long time. Now, the dollar system might break apart, but that's not going to be replaced by any kind of global currency. And the Americans are never going to stand for a global currency that they don't control completely. And after all, they already control the U.S. dollar. And so that is the world currency now, is the U.S. dollar. And so... You know, the U.N. types are always talking like this and they may, you know, attempt to create some sort of new financial institution. But I wouldn't worry too much about them getting away with much. You know, you can only inflate as long as people will still accept your money. Mm -hmm. But somebody hands you a bill with what, you know, Kofi Annan or Kurt Waldheim or something (laughs) on it. And you're going to accept that as your as your. as your currency, I just think that's never going to happen. But in terms of inflation here, here's what people need to understand about the inflation is that, you know, for example, the 
I always kind of mix up exactly who's all Chicago this and monetarists that, but they're, you know, I guess Milton Friedman said that, look, we ought to have a central bank and it ought to target about a rate of 2% inflation per year. That's not too destructive, but it prevents prices from falling, which somehow is bad. And, you know, this is what we should do. But the flaw in that, even if we're only talking 2%, never mind this, you know, insane QE 1 through 10 and all these things that you're talking about now, these emergency injections of of liquid money and all this, but um, of new money. But even if you're just talking a 2% overall inflation rate, that doesn't lead to a rise in prices at 2% across the board that everyone can just kind of factor this into their equation and figure out how to proceed. What ends up happening, of course, is you get big bubbles in certain sectors. And this is what we've seen over and over again, you know, in my lifetime, in the 1980s, it was the oil boom and then the oil crash. And I'm telling you, they had built in, in North Austin, Texas, where I'm from, they had built entire neighborhoods worth of streets and sidewalks and mailboxes. And they were just starting to lay down the slabs to build the houses. And then those entire neighborhoods just stayed empty for years, for 10 years. What's now Lake Line Mall was nothing but a bunch of slabs covered in teenage beer drinkers having a good time for a decade. They had laid all these foundations and then the entire oil economy in Texas came to a screeching halt and crashed. Then you had in 1992, there was a bit of a recession after Iraq War One, but then Alan Greenspan turned on the money machine big time. And what happened was they built up these massive bubbles, particularly in housing, the stock market in general, and particularly tech stocks, what they call the dot-com boom, right? The NASDAQ and the Dow, and those crashed in 99 and 2000. And you might remember when Bush came in, Bush Jr., well, you're too young, I guess. When Bush Jr., it's hard for me to admit how long ago that was, okay? <laughs> um, when Bush Jr. came in, he said, this is the Clinton recession. This is not my fault. It's the Clinton recession, which was true. And he was just making sure that everybody knew. We were already in recession before I got here, so don't get that confused a year from now when you're thinking back. But, and then we got hit on September 11th, right in the financial district in downtown Manhattan. And this hurt the airlines and it hurt obviously all these financial institutions that were based in New York. And if anything, we were facing a stiffer recession then. That was going to be some level of setback. I mean, this is the USA with a $20 trillion economy or however you measured it then. It, our, our GDP was never and our society wasn't at stake, but that was going to be a double dip in our recession. And then Alan Greenspan put the pedal to the floor, 0% interest rates, come and get it. And so then what that did was that housing bubble had never popped. The one from the 90s had just kept growing and growing and growing. And Ron Paul warned at the time on the House floor. That's why I was good on this. As an economist, I'm a great anti-war guy, you know, but I pay attention to the Austrians. And Ron Paul said, listen, we're just replacing one bubble with another here. Right. And we already have a bubble in housing. And now you're just going to be shoveling all more and more and more currency into the housing market to prop up those prices. But eventually the reality is going to come due on that. And those prices are all going to collapse too. And then that was what happened in 2008 and 2009. All that funny money had been shoveled into the housing market and into the stock market and into fuel. And then those prices completely collapsed and led to, you know, the Great Recession, um, as they call it now. And then what did they do in response to that? QE, one, two, three, four, five. What does that mean? That means they printed money out of nothing. They created new money 
at the central bank in order to buy up old bad debt, in order to prop up the banks who'd made the bad loans. Instead of allowing them to go bankrupt and for their good assets to be bought up in bankruptcy court at reasonable prices, they decided they would just continue to pump up the prices and they pumped that much money into the market, which means that what Trump has been running on, and I'm sure you've noticed, this whole time has been, the bubble hasn't popped yet, the bubble hasn't popped yet, vote Trump. And then he even, I don't know if you saw this on Twitter where this is probably six months ago, the um, he tweeted that who is a worse enemy of America, Chairman Z or Chairman Powell right. of the Federal Reserve? And that was because Powell had raised the federal funds rate a quarter of a point. And Donald Trump went absolutely crazy and said, these guys are trying to pop the bubble on me. And I got to make it through next November before the damn bubble breaks. He knows the score. He's talked about when he was running against Obama. He said, this isn't a good economy. It's all a big bubble. He's a real estate guy. He's seen this before. He may not know Austrian school economics, but he knows a bubble when he sees one. And so he was insisting and the Federal Reserve backed down. And they said, OK, we're going to keep interest rates as low as possible. And we're going to keep printing money and allowing the banks to continue to expand bank credit. But then the coronavirus came, and that was the deflationary pressure that was necessary. That was the bubble was going to pop anyway. In this case, it was the virus that pricked the bubble, mm-hmm. and the government's response of total economic clampdown. Uh, we had, you know, 10 million unemployed just in the last month, and that's going to continue growing. All the projections are we're going to have a record number of defaulted mortgages and all of this the stock market is already through the floor and falling and it's just going to get worse so we were already due for a massive crash but now we have this once in a century pandemic that's not just crashing the markets it's holding them down and pushing them further and further and further down we're looking at some estimates are going to be 30 percent 30 something percent unemployment by this summer which is worse than the Great Depression. Right. I mean, we're, we've, we've fallen from a lot higher to a, um, a level that is much higher than the 1930s in the economic scheme of things. We got trucks, we got factories, we have educated engineers, we have real capital that cannot be destroyed in this country that we have to work with. So it won't be as bad as the Great Depression mm-hmm. as far as that goes. But the level of unemployment is just an absolute catastrophe. Yeah. And... And nobody really knows what it's going to look like. But then what's their response? They created a trillion dollars in a week. Never mind what Congress did. Just the Federal Reserve themselves went type, 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 one zero 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 zero, created a trillion dollars and bought up a trillion dollars worth of bad debt in one week's time. That was a week ago. I can't keep track. I'm trying to read David Stockman all the time. Um, he's the best on this stuff. And um uh, yeah, write that down and subscribe. It's worth the money to subscribe to his writing. It's a paywall, but it's worth it. David Stockman's Contra Corner, uh, Reagan's former budget director, great Austrian school economist, uh, economist and government hater, anti-war guy. I mean, when it comes to like debunking fake sarin attacks in Syria, when it comes to debunking Russiagate, I mean, there's nobody better. And he's also just absolutely killer on on the economics of all of this. And so Congress, you know, passed this two trillion dollar bill. Uh, for their bailouts for all them. But the Federal Reserve, they're way out and and they go unremarked upon. They never really get talked about 
outside of the business press about how much money they're creating. But what that means then is we could have, yes, price inflation across the board where prices are rising in general at everyone's expense. That's just like them tearing corners off the dollar bills in your pocket, right? Reducing the same reason why it's against the law for you and I to counterfeit money right. is because essentially we're stealing from the rest of our community by devaluing the currency in their pocket by introducing new money. Well, that's the same thing that the government does. The fact that there's George Washington on there don't mean that it's holy writ, man. It's just a, uh, you know, a government coupon is all it is essentially. And, um, and they'll create more and more and more of them. And that's going to lead to higher prices across the board. But then it's also going to lead to massive bubbles in certain sectors, which will then mean that another 10 years from now, we're going to definitely have another major crash yeah. as you know, the, the bubble of artificial prosperity crashes down into the recession of a very real crash when all those misallocated resources have to be shaken out and reallocated. And of course, a major consequence of all this then is the push of the left further and further and further to socialism in on the idea that capitalism is a failure that they don't understand uh Misesian monetary theory they just know that this system is what they call capitalism and that every 10 years the rug gets pulled out from everyone from the bottom 80 percent of the society got to start all over again it's just a complete wreck. And so people end up choosing the very wrong solution is to move further and further toward the supposed opposite of this system, <laughs> socialism, when what we really need to be doing is embracing laissez-faire. What we need to do is take central bankers and the other kind out back and shoot them mm -hmm. rather than bailing them out. We need to let them crash. We need to have hard money and no bailouts, no subsidies for any corporation no no you know special benefits for any rich connected elites but how realistic is that mm -hmm. and so that also means that the right wing have abandoned conservatism whatever that ever meant for now a much more populist nationalist take which is you know not necessarily in favor of capitalism either uh it's really the state first and the state's wisest leaders should decide how things should be and so if that means you know massive tariffs and tr and crackdowns on trade with china and preventing global trade in in the name of protecting american jobs somehow or whatever they'll go for that those are all very counterproductive policies and i read a whole thing the other day about outsourcing to china is what absolutely killed the american small town and closed all these factories down and there's some truth to that but not really. It's the robots, not the Chinese. It's technological innovation that just says you need fewer and fewer factory workers for these assembly line, old blue collar union jobs that actually paid middle class incomes. And that's just, you know, the adjustment of reality to new technology. Uh, um, but international trade gets the blame. And it is true that labor's cheaper in China. So when you have a massive regulatory state here, and cheaper labor there, it becomes actually less expensive to ship everything you've got overseas, get it made into the thing you want, and ship it back again. Right. And of course, that's all subsidized, all the security is subsidized by the US Navy, which does, you know, if Walmart had to hire their own mercs to protect their boats across the Pacific Ocean and back, we might be having an entirely different conversation right now. It might not even be an issue at all, mm -hmm. but of course they're completely subsidizing all their security costs by the American taxpayer too. 
So we're paying them to offshore our jobs. And there's more and more of a right-wing reaction to that. Right. And, and again, if this system is capitalism, well, maybe we need, they don't like to call it this, but what they're call it, what it is, is fascism. Mm -hmm. Maybe we need for the government not to abolish private property, but to take control over what people can do with their private property, since these evil corporate chieftains are are so willing to sacrifice the national interest for their own corporate interests. Maybe we need a wise bunch of leaders to prevent them from doing that. And that's one of the huge consequences. You're seeing that kind of rhetoric all the time now, that it's just intolerable that China makes our masks and makes our antibiotics and these kinds of things that our jobs have been shipped over to this country that's inflicted us with this virus and all this stuff. And so instead of moving toward the real solution to all of these problems, liberty, which includes, yes, a ban on the government printing money all day, which is theft, which is stealing from people, which distorts the sound economy, and then which bails out all of the people who need it the least every time the crash comes, right? And and then so, but the American people look at that, they say, if that's capitalism, then I'm moving further left, then I'm moving further right, and everything is that much worse. And so then it's our job as libertarians to explain that no man. You know, capitalism on one hand means private property ownership and exchange. It also means the system of state power where the capitalists run the state. We're not in favor of that. We're not in favor of the state. And we certainly aren't in favor of a bunch of bankers and arms dealers and pharmaceutical companies and, and agribusiness firms running the state. That's right. not what we meant, damn it. We want a free market, and that means freedom to fail for especially those biggest, most top-heavy conglomerates that don't deserve to survive. And in a free market, there would be no J.P. Morgan Chase. There would be no Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. They'd have been destroyed by free market forces a hundred times over by now. Mm -hmm. Same thing for the arms dealers. Same thing for the giant agribusiness firms that bought up all the farms during the crash, the, the different crashes back in the 80s and in the 90s was, you know, they destroyed the family farm. Part of that was just innovation and consolidation, but part of that was the massive boom-bust cycle. Hey, young farmers inheriting your grandfather's farm, what you need to do while interest rates are low, you need to take out a big loan so that you can, uh, you, you can modernize and bring in computers and new tractors and more efficient things and then oh big crash and now we're going to raise the interest rates especially in the 1980s now we got to raise interest rates through the roof and completely bankrupt you and then put up 10,000 farms for foreclosure and let archer daniels midland and monsanto come in and consolidate them all that ain't the free market that ain't laissez-faire that is if you're the victim of that that's fascism mm -hmm. right that is a crony system a conspiracy against you. And then, in fact, where did the right-wing militia movement of the 1990s come from? It was those young men who lost their great-grandfather's farm. Right. And it, and it, they didn't lose it. It was taken from them, and they knew it. And so same kind of thing's going to happen now. Right. Well, to kind of finish up here and talk on a lighter note, do you want to just pitch your, your newest book that you have back there and then tell people where they can find you? Sure. So, yeah, that's the great Ron Paul. That's um, all of my interviews, 40, 39 interviews to Dr. Paul from from 2003 through 2019, 15 years of my interviews with Dr. Paul. And also a speech that I gave about how much I love the guy, too, is there. And then 
I don't know if you can see over on the other side, I got my book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. And you can also see Sheldon Richmond's great book there, Coming to Palestine, The Libertarian Take on Israel-Palestine. And I hope you can see this one. It's harder to see the cover here, um, but it's No Quarter, The Ravings of William Norman Grigg. And he was one of the greatest heroes of the libertarian movement. He died in 2017. He was with Sheldon and I, the founding partner of the Libertarian Institute. And that is a collection of his writings. It's just blow your mind it's so good and oh you're gonna hate cops so much by the end of that thing it's just incredible um and and really he he, he was great he's such a great writer he was if you're not familiar he really was the most eloquent writer and speaker in the libertarian movement by light years he was the best of us and uh and that book is absolutely the proof of that too so i'm really proud you can find all those at libertarianinstitute.org books and we have those are all four published by my institute, the Libertarian Institute, and I'm really proud of all of them. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Scott. It was great talking to you. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it.